Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. Today, our CEO, Sally, chats with Garod Toey. Garod is a co-founder of the Athlete Advantage and Crossing the Line Sport. He joins Sally to share his journey from representing Ireland as a rower in three Olympic Games to moving to Australia and working on athlete mental health and transition out of sport. Garrod discusses the path that he took to co-found Crossing the Line Sport, where ex-athletes support each other to work through their own experiences, to also co-founding The Athlete Advantage, which is a step-by-step program in career development, coaching and mental well-being. I want to start by you telling me about your career as an elite athlete. Yeah, so um, I started rowing when I was very young, when I was about 10 years old. Um, my siblings, my older siblings were doing it and um, my dad got heavily involved in the club as well. And so they were always down there training and I was just brought along for babysitting purposes, I guess. Um, but having to you know hang around and i guess watch what they're doing i guess as the youngest sibling you always want to be doing what your older siblings are doing so i started to want to get out in the boat and i started you know wanting to get out in the coach's boat and i guess the obsession kind of started from there um i think just purely from watching the sport when i was very young i picked up a lot of stuff um i was very active myself i was always always cycling running hanging out with my mates doing all sorts of stuff so rowing when it came along, it was sort of, I wasn't really that good at ball sports. Um, I wasn't really into them. Like, I didn't really, I didn't, you know, didn't really grab me. So, I, uh, rowing was the first sport that really grabbed me. And um, I just went hell for leather, you know. Um, I picked, I, I saw the Olympics in Seoul 88. And I remember thinking that I, that's something I wanted to do. Um, and pretty much from the age of 14 onwards, I, I just trained and uh, had that dream you know um and i kind of went very quickly as a junior i I had a good junior kind of i guess um period in the sport i went to the junior world championships twice and um then won the under 23 worlds um so the progression was quite um fast um and i got into the senior teams when i was still junior that kind of stuff so um I guess I could see that the, the possibility to do well at the highest level was there early on. Um, so that was a really good, I guess, carrot for me to keep going. And even though, you know, uh, people, sports people have a lot of ups and downs, as long as you can, as long as you feel like you have a chance to succeed at the highest level, that, that it's within you to do it, you'll always be motivated to, to keep doing the training and keep doing the racing. So even on, on, on years when it wasn't going so well, um, that fire to keep going was still there. Uh, and so it was only when, when uh, that fire disappeared uh, that I decided I couldn't be an elite athlete anymore. Okay. So how did you maintain your level of motivation as a young person? Was it desire to win and that kept you going? Like for a young person, that's a pretty big ask, isn't it? Yeah, I, it definitely. Um, I, I I was one of these kids that put everything to to the side in order to do my sport. So I just re- really in my teenage years, I, I I did little else other than go to school and 
do sport, um, do rowing. And I guess it, that that possibility or kind of knowing a, um, that I could do well at the highest level was what, what drove me definitely at that time. Um, so I was very much very focused, doing everything right, like eating right, getting enough rest. Just I was very, very professional, even though I was only 16 or 17. Um, but I was enjoying it too. Like I, was, I didn't feel like a sacrifice or anything like that. Like I felt like it was a massive opportunity because I was heading off to like Belgium and France racing, you know, and my schoolmates were, weren't doing that kind of stuff. So I felt like it was a really privileged place to be and I really wanted to be part of that world. Um, so yeah, for me, it was just a big adventure. I just sort of felt like in the younger years. Um, I think the, the, then what happens is that you, you go along, you realize that, you know, all the training and effort. I remember there was one day I realized like that when we started ramping up the training really hard um, for periods of time, I remember thinking, oh, wow, I've just realized that I'm not training to make this easier. I'm just training harder so I can go harder in the race. Um, so that dawning realization that like the pain was never going to go away. You were just training so you could exist at a higher level. Um, and so uh, I guess the motivation to train then came from, I mean, if you didn't train, you're going to get your ass handed to you in the races. So you, you had to train hard to, in order for that not to happen. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so I heard you say a minute ago, when the fire went out, you yeah. retired. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so I, I was always adamant when I was rowing that I was never going to be one of these people that <laughs> kept going beyond my um, um, date, you know, expiry date. Um, and people used to always say, oh, you'll know when that time comes. Um, I definitely knew when that time came um, and I decided to exit at that time. Uh, looking back, it probably was a bit of maybe I could have done things a little bit differently in that regard, but I just couldn't. I couldn't justify, uh, I couldn't justify it in my life anymore. Like I was, you know, I wanted, really wanted to do other things. Um, and that sort of took over, I guess. And I, I get, um, I had a little bit of, I guess, tiredness from the sport. I was kind of a little bit over the, um, the routine and a bit over the kind of the scene, I guess, you know? Um, so I actually took a year away from the sport after 2004 and then that's at the 2004 Olympics. I took 2005 a year away from the sport. I had a fantastic time. Um, I did lots of like amazing adventures. I met some really good people. I just kind of opened my eyes a little bit to another realm. Um, and I enjoyed it so much that when I went back to racing in 2006, it just it didn't have the same uh, um, bite to it. Uh, even though we were doing very well and winning stuff, even the winning of those races didn't feel as ecstatic as it did before. Um, so I made a commitment to see it through to the 2008 Olympics, but I knew at that Olympics that um, for sure I was going to step away and probably never do it again. It's um, interesting yeah. that you knew that the passion had died because what I find is a lot of people are in jobs, careers, things like that. that passion has died, but they don't have the courage to listen to themselves and move on which is generally speaking a wide problem yeah so when you were deciding was it your gut instinct and you go no I'm done or was it something that you really had to think through for a long time it's a very interesting question because um 
my gut was definitely telling me that it was time. Um, and actually, uh, to January 2007, I actually stopped rowing. I, I actually decided to retire then. Um, but it came around to September 2007, and it was Olympic qualifying year. Um, and at that time, I was having to to think about what I was going to do next in life. And with the Olympics only a year away, I started getting um, a bit of pressure to come back to the team and, and do one more year. Uh, and actually, my head took over that decision, and I decided, okay, I'll do it. Uh, my gut didn't tell me that to do that, uh, make that decision. My head did. Um, and so, you know, I, if I kept listening to my gut then, I wouldn't have gone to the Beijing Olympics probably. I definitely wouldn't have. But um, but I went from gut feeling, which felt right, to the head feeling, which didn't feel right. Um, but, of course, I made a commitment, and that was it. I, I, kept, I kept going because I made a commitment. But really, I should have stopped listening to my gut. Um, which which is a which is quite a hard thing to do when your head is and and all and pe- you know people around you um, want you to go in another direction you know. Um, so There's a big was, message in that, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. A lot of people listen to what they're being told as opposed to I can't do this anymore. So yeah. 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 So wind the clock forward. You moved to Australia. What brought you to this beautiful country? Well, I used to. I came here for the first time for the Sydney Olympics. So my first time in Australia was for the Sydney Olympics. Um, and then after the games, I actually um, came back here to train for for three months um, in the nice weather because back home it was the weather was atrocious. Um, and I needed to just change things up a little bit. Um, and then I actually, because that worked out so well, that was 2001. I decided to do it again in 2002 and again in 2003. So I'd get a tourist visa, come here and train for three months, do all the races, and then head back to Europe in pretty good shape. So my love for Australia um, kind of started there. Um, and then, of course, I developed friendships and, and um, stuff when I was here. And then in 2009, I came here traveling. Um, and then I had a started a relationship with somebody who was from here. And so then he came to live in, in Ireland with me for a year. And then um, he had to come back here for family reasons. And so um, we decided, okay, let's, let's move back to Sydney then. So that's how it happened. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's that, a was big two, that was 2011 now. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So let's go to your current role. How did that unfold? With the athlete advantage. Um, so in, it's a bit of a long story. <laughs> so in 2000, after I finished um, and uh, kind of went into the real world, I guess, uh, I, I was trying to make sense of what was going on in my head a little bit because I was having this unexpected feeling, even though I wanted to retire and I was very well prepared. I thought I had a degree and everything like that. And I had been doing a lot of thinking about the future. Um, uh, I still found, I, I guess I underestimated how much my identity was connected to being an athlete. Um, I, I thought that it was, it wasn't as connected as some other people, you know? Um, so I felt very safe in that regard. But then when I finished, I realized, wow, like about a year out, I was thinking, oh my God, like there's a massive thing gone for my life here. I guess not just, um, you know, what you're doing, but like wh- what you're, you know, a plan, having a plan you know, and having a goal to go towards. And it was the first time I haven't had a plan since I was like 
four years old before I went to primary school. You know what I mean? Like sort of like, and so with the Olympics and with you know being an athlete, especially with the Olympics, you have a four-year cycle. Within that four-year cycle, you've got like one-year cycles with world championships. You've got then within the one-year cycle, you've got three, you know, World Cups. You've got all the training. Everything is like structured like a pyramid. And, um, and yeah, I just, when that was gone, I guess I just, it was like, wow, okay, this is, this is a bit weird. This is a bit full on. And, and, and just not being able to ask, answer the question, the simple questions of like, what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah. Um, okay. That I found out very destabilizing. So I kind of went into a bit of a funk. Um, and I went online looking for some sort of support, you know, some sort of like website that would explain to me or talk to me. Uh, explained to me what was what I was feeling in my head or in my heart at the time, and it basically was not there. So I kind of was like, "Wow, that's interesting." There's nowhere, there's no website in the world that does this, kind of like a Beyond Blue type thing for sport. Um, and that's when I got the idea to start crossing the line. I didn't do it right away. I went and started an, another company doing events because I'm quite passionate about adventure and all that kind of stuff. So I started a company that organized events in that. But then a couple of years later, I came back and said, I wonder has anyone done that idea yet? And I went online. No, no one's done it. And I said, okay, if you don't do it, it'll annoy you. So that's when I got the idea to start it. So that's essentially what crossing the line is. It's like a, a website where people can get on, on a safe space. No one knows they're on there, but they can read stuff that will, or look at videos, podcasts, whatever, that'll make sense of the world that they're, feeling at the moment yep. that was totally alien to them um so uh so crossing the line started 2015 and then we kept going along and we started to provide services for sports um so for olympic sports and professional sports like athlete transition programs um and then uh in sydney there's another company called final whistle uh which was very similar to crossing the line except that it did mainly services for like in the career transition space as opposed to the mental health well-being space and so i've always had a really good relationship with those guys um uh and last year crossing the line became a charity and so in order to to fulfill our charity status we had to take the service side of the of crossing the line away and um so that the so that we could the charity could just be a charitable organization and not a service organization so when that happened we decided we were going to join forces with the final whistle to do the service side and create a new entity completely so the crossing line is now a separate thing all on its own as a charity and so the 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 athlete advantage is this kind of um the the amalgamation of final whistle and the service side of crossing line yeah so it's been a big journey so yeah Careers and mental health to us go hand in hand because we see so many people transitioning, redundancies, no job, causes depression, anxiety and many other things that people just can't cope with. From a sportsman who's had to be a perfectionist and had to be mentally tough and put this persona on and not take the mask off what sort of things do they go through it must be so big for them going from being an a recognized identity to one of us what sort of things do they go through and how do you help them well, first of all, I totally agree with your statement about mental health and career um, going hand in hand. Like it's the same for 
for, for you know for us like we you know are in many ways athletes their mental health can be determined by how they're going like in how the results are how their training is going all that kind of stuff so uh, literally your mood is dictated by your success or not um and so you know it's it's a very powerful feeling as an athlete and of course it's the same for lots of other professions but like where you're you really feel like your your passion and purpose are being um like the solution is there with sport it's like it's a it's a high octane like it's it's a big adrenaline rush um it's you know it's, it's something that people are very well respected for in the community um so it's very anchoring you know sport is really anchoring um and you know certain traits about being a sports person as you mentioned perfectionism but there's also stuff like you know um over competitiveness and stuff like that that can that are rewarded in the sporting world actually and can be developed <laughs> uh, in the sporting world um they're not necessarily traits that are helpful in the real world you know if you put someone who's like super competitive i mean like the standard of of performance that they require at a training level every day in sport is so high that it just you become used to that level of perfection and so when you take that level of perfection out and plug it into the real world into a job into an into a, into a working environment it's <laughs> nine times out of ten it's not going to fit it's going to be too much it's going to be too intense and so people are going to think you're overly competitive you're overly perfectionistic you don't fit in here, you know, like, and that's, that's definitely one of the things. The other, the other thing that's quite um, hard for athletes to um, overcome when they go into the working world also is in the sporting world, the level of feedback that you get on a daily, hourly, even like by minute by minute basis is, is, an, is huge. So you can get feedback from how your body's feeling, what the equipment is telling you, what the, um, say in rowing, what the water is telling you, uh, how you're going against your teammates, how you're going against your rivals, what your coach is telling you. You can get feedback any time of the day or night. They measure your heart rate, they measure your, your urine, see how much, you know, density, like it's like everything, right? Whereas in the working world, uh, that doesn't exist at the same level. And so athletes struggle with that lack of feedback. So like reassurance about how they're going, how they're not going, where they can improve, all that kind of stuff. That's not commonly readily available in the working world. You know, they go into a job and it's like they ask for feedback and the person says, oh, well, you're still here, aren't you? You know, so that's kind of, so they do definitely struggle with that. And so they, they struggle with the concept of um, uh, of working at something and kind of hoping that it's going well, you know? So um, that's definitely a big difference. Um, but also sort of like, as I was describing earlier on about, when, you know, when you're training, and you get out of bed because to train and you're motivated because you're, first of all, if you don't do that tra level of training, you're going to get, you know, beaten. Um, that's one, one thing. And that's, uh, that's, and with the Olympic Games, your goal, you, you just do it without even questioning it. I mean, sometimes you question it, right? You go like, what am I doing? But it lasts for like two seconds because you go, oh, I'm going to go to the Olympics. So that's, yes. that's your motivation. Yeah. Whereas finding that exact motivation or finding that exact um something that that gives you that motivation it's very difficult like it's it's almost you know you want to be quite privileged in life if you if you manage to find two or three things in your life that that have that same give you that same motivation 
It's just, I think the expectations on levels of motivation need to be uh, curbed a little bit too. It's like, you're not always going to be happy every day. You're not always going to be motivated every day. You know, um, things aren't going to always work out every day, you know, and, um, and also being okay with not knowing what you're going to do for a while. Um, one of the big problems in the career development side is that athletes are, are rushing the decision to, for what they're going to do next. And so they, um, in that rush, they just don't get down to the core of what they're, what they're going to do. So um, a lot of them go into jobs that they're just not suited to and they start businesses and stuff that they haven't really thought through. Um, so we, a big part of the stuff that we try and get them to do is just to slow down um, just take the, you know, put the brakes on for a little while and, and start to really spend time and effort um, figuring out what it is that motivates them now and to drive the sport. Because I read on your website that uh, they very easily get jobs, but about 50% don't make it past the probationary period. Is mm. that because of those things you just told me? Yeah, exactly. So, like, um, there's a couple of things. One is like the rush to do something because they're not they're not comfortable with being still or comfortable with not achieving something for a period of time. Um, the other thing is like obviously financial pressure. Like they need to keep the dollars rolling in, so they want to take a job. Doesn't matter what the job is, as long as it's giving me these amount of dollars. Um, that's another reason. Um, and you know the other the other big part is that you know the it's sort of like a not giving enough, I guess, credit or respect to to how difficult the real world is. You know, the real world is a is a is a tough place, and while sport is a really is a tough environment, and as you said before, like you've got to be mentally tough, you've got to like um, have a stiff upper lip and all that kind of stuff. Really, it's quite a simple life. Um, it's you know you. It's, a, it's almost like a formula um, and barring injuries or, or any other disasters, you're probably going to get a result by using this formula if you train hard and put into work. Whereas real life doesn't really work like that. Um, and uh, so they, they, they struggle a little bit with that too. What sort of skills and education do you give them to help them overcome those obstacles? A big part of it is, you know, distinguishing yourself from you and from you, the athlete. So your values and your um, motivations and goals as an athlete might be completely different to what they are as you, the human being. So the first thing that they've got to do is really figure out or meet themselves, really. Um, could be for the first time. Um, who are you without your sport? Um and that's the first step. Why are you full stop? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which can be like bloody confronting. Yes. <laughs> you know? I it's imagine like, going from, you know, being world recognized, being on the news, seen out there, to going, hey, who am I? And now I've got to do this exploratory work could be very confronting for them. How do you overcome that? Yeah, it's a, it's a very um, interesting one because it kind of goes back to what you're saying about um, career development and mental health going hand in hand. Like um, there is a cup, there is that period of time after retirement can be very complex because it could, could be a number of things going on. 
So from if you look at the identity piece and, and what you're going to do with the rest of your life, take that apart, which is a huge, a huge bit of the reason why the mental health, um, mental health situations can arise. But there's a couple of other reasons as well. It's like, you know, what got them into the sport in the first place? Was there an underlying issue that that that, that was happening where sport then became this safe place and refuge where they were able to excel? Um, you know, so and it became, I guess, the issues became got parked for a period of time uh, in the sporting bubble because it, they didn't have to tackle them because sport was essentially their medicine. You know, um, when the sport finishes, then the medicine is gone, and then those problems are still there. So Good. they can come home to roost soon afterwards. Um, that combined with the identity crisis uh, side of things. Then you've got the whole family unit. So if you if they have families, um, that the whole transition, sporting transition can turn the families upside down. Like this is a stat from Premiership football in the UK with sixty seven percent are retired within two years. Sorry, fifty percent, sixty seven percent are divorced or separated within two years of retirement. Um, and you know that's a that's that's a frightening statistic. Really, it just goes to show that the families need to be prepared. Uh, as well um, so it can be a bit of a perfect storm of stuff and so there needs to be some um, psychological assistance in that way so I think it's sort of you're working with people who may encounter a mental health episode or a mental health issue whilst you're working with the career side so what we do is we have a um, you know we have a referral uh, network all the people who, who work with us have got a um, a work uh, first mental health first aid right. um, and so we're all able to identify um, and respond to mental health issues that present themselves to us um, and then we refer them then to a psychologist um, you know so so that's what what we do because we are mi- really mindful of the fact that um, yeah one can lead to the other you know and it, it's definitely a period of a period of time that's very tricky for a lot of people so your career practitioner works with the psychologist like and manages each case individually each case is individual like we the the athlete advantage is like a really it's a very tailored program so the athletes get um a very individualized program like to get their own coach um and that coach then uh has the skills to work with them on their career stuff um uh and work with them under psychological stuff if they're if they're finding anything, but but mainly it's about referring out to to our our referral network, our trusted providers. And what are the results? What are the outcomes like? Like, what's the percentage of success of these people transitioning in and going on to be happy? Well, it is. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question because, like, yeah, it's a bit of a spectrum, you know. Like, um, career-wise. Um, you know there is quite a high high success rate. You know, like we only hear about the the the, the rates, the the bad stories in the media. But like the, you know, there is quite a high success rate because like like essentially, I mean, we are dealing with very highly successful people who are very capable and who are um, very resilient. And it's just about repackaging their skills in and put them into something that they're passionate about. That's the that's the hard bit, as you just spoke about, but. The transferable skills piece is very important to us. Like we, 
all those skills from sport, you spend so much time developing these amazing skills that you know could be used in the boardrooms, like in leadership roles, um, anywhere. And so we spend a lot of time unpacking those transferable skills with the athlete and then weaving their story around it so they can use that at interviews, they can use it in networking, they can use it in, in um, talks that they're doing. So, uh, and you know, those skills are, you know, the, board, um, the corporate world are crying out for those skills. Like they, they get athletes in to talk about stuff all the time, about resilience, about teamwork, about all this kind of stuff. But imagine actually having one of them working in your business, you know, uh, being able to use all those skills. Like that's, that's the sweet spot. Yeah, and you'd have to keep challenging them, I guess, and giving them more to keep them motivated. So yeah, and I think I think as well as I said about the feedback. I think if I think a good, I think stuff that you know, I mean, with our program coaching, the coaching is only one element. The coaching and online, we have an online learning platform as well with sixteen courses, eight on mental health and well-being, and eight on career development stuff, and so we. That's stage one. And once they finish that stage, you know, they'll build a portfolio of useful resources that they need um, for the working world, like, you know, really good resume, LinkedIn profile, all that kind of stuff, their transferable skills. And then in a portfolio that they can take out into the world, when they take that step, we match them with a mentor uh, in the area of expertise, sorry, in the area that they want to work in, that they've identified with the coach. And then following on from that, then is a work experience placement. So they get those um, different elements in the in the program. So it's building the skills and then implementing them with the latter part. And so a big part of that for us with the mentoring and the work experience part is also educating the companies and saying, like, if you really want to get this person working well for you, you know, give them feedback regularly. That you know, get them to tap in to what makes the, that person tick. Is what our all our leaders should be doing in this day and age. Our millennials love feedback, and the more you give them, the harder and better they'll work. So, there's a real message in here. So, as a career practitioner myself, I see the need for your type of program in nearly every industry. So, depression is so big at the moment and it most often relates back to something to do with the job um, that, where there are other reasons. But the clients I'm seeing, it, that, like, they're either being bullied, they hate their job, they're not earning enough money, they're working long hours. What sort of skills do you think we need to be teaching people to help with them this? And the other question is, could your program be transferred into other industries? Absolutely. You know, we're, the reason why we're doing it in sport, um, obviously, it's just the, it's the area that we know best. That's where we have all our life experience and stuff. But for sure, this can be um, uh, modified and, and transferred into other industries. Um, you know, even uh, veterans and, you know, um, uh, creative art, like any performance space, you know, that's um, our content is sort of like all about um, 
performers, I guess, you know, like in terms of that, that high, high performance people from one uh, sphere and then like plugging them into somewhere else. Like, and that's, so yeah, you can take pretty much take our content and modify it. Um, it's, it's absolutely relevant for everybody, you know, uh, with a few, with a few minor tweaks. Um, I think this whole thing about performance and like striving for something, you know, it, it has a, um, it taps into a part of our, our brains. Like it's, it's like, it's like a massive gamble, you know, so going to an Olympics, going and doing, um, anything that's audacious, um, carries with it a massive risk of, of, of it not working out. And that's actually a attractive part of the process for a lot of people as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot to be said as well for not ignoring that part of that person that, you know, would take such a huge gamble. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a certain personality type that does that. Um, and to not so much fit them into the real world. Uh, it's more about like integrating them because uh, you don't want them to lose the, those parts of themselves that make them what they, what they are, you know, you don't want to change them. You want to use that and, going forward so that's sort of quite often their strengths exactly one of the things is i'm heartened to see more and more organizations um undertaking the, the mental health accreditation but there's a step before that and programs like yours i think is the step if we could be more proactive so that people didn't reach the point of severe depression, do you think that's where your program could fit across the board? Yeah, it's interesting because the, the content on our online courses, for instance, isn't um, designed to be a remedy for anything. What it does, it actually... It stimulates, it gives information. A sense um, of hope. Yeah, and also just information and maybe kind of like, uh, you know, start a conversation with their coach about, oh, yeah, I saw this in, in, that, in that video. I think that that could be me. Um, I never had it explained to me like that before. So it could start a conversation that will end up being very helpful to them because um, they've been exposed to that content, whatever it is, you know. So um, it's really like, that's what our content on the sites is all about. It's giving people an understanding um, and an education about what those issues are. And, and perhaps if it relates to them, then they'll be able to get this, get the assistance to do it, you know, but our, I guess, especially mental health and wellbeing courses that we have, they're not, they're definitely not designed to fix anyone, No. but they're definitely a step in that direction if, if they need it. Because what we found here is the people doing our accredited mental health course, generally speaking, are managers, supervisors, CEOs. And from our experience, people in the lower level jobs are not getting that education. And we know if someone has a mental health issue, they're generally not going to go to the CEO. So there's still a gap, I guess, which is why we've developed that induction program. But there's still a gap in 
the amount of education people are going doing. So I guess courses like yours in them, not necessarily doing the full course, but understanding it's okay to go and speak about it is essential in this day and age. And that's yeah. why I was kind of interested in could that be broadened into other areas because yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah, because quite often, like, sorry, go on, sorry. No, like teachers, nurses, veterans, police, it's rampant. Mm, Absolutely. And look, it's sort of with the, um, you know, starting looking at something that triggers something for you to get help or recognize something in yourself is a a really good first step. And it's sort of with athletes, you know, um, you know, we're finding that, a big problem with the whole mental health side is that athletes are petrified of getting deselected and they're not, not picked for a team because the coach finds out that they've got a mental health issue yes. uh, yeah. and they get put into a too hard basket. And so they, you know, that, that still exists in sport and athletes are very mindful of that. Um, and so what's very important to us is um, for them to feel safe in our program, that they were independent. Um, we're not running to their coach and telling them what's happening. Their coach can't be ringing us up, asking us who's going to see who. Um, and so, yeah, we're very big on that. And we feel that that's one of our key uh, value points is that we are independent and confidential. Um, and, you know, if an athlete decides to get help through our program because they've done it and they feel safe, then awesome, you know. Um and I think it's the same in a lot of high performance environments, like in the corporate environment or in any any performance area. The same thing. You don't want to be, you know, uh, stigmatized for um, looking for mental health support, you know, and which is a very healthy thing to be doing. It like, is. I mean, yeah. it's just like it's it's it's, it's, sportsmen yeah. are now coming out and talking about it. I think that's certainly going to help. Yeah, and and I mean, look, looking, I mean, look, I've gone to psychologists and stuff like that since I've retired and, and stuff. But it's sort sort of you know seeing the the value of that as an athlete. I mean, uh, if I had my time again, I would go and see, go and see the psychologist every month when I was an athlete because it's just the value of 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 of, of doing that is is, is huge. Um, but it's just not recognised as a high performance element yet. No, let's hope we're getting there. So. Um, what sort of advice would you give to our, our listeners for anyone transitioning from one career to another? Um, if one piece of advice, I would say take your time. I would say really, you know, it's, it's, it's good to have answers straight away, but if something which is going to be your career and it's going to be, what you're going to be spending most of your time doing, don't take that decision lightly, and spend uh, as much time as you as you need um, figuring it out, reading, um, doing as much research as you can, um, assess yourself, figure out what your values are, um, what you want in your life, uh, what your ideal day looks like, um, and strive for that. Um, and so that's what I would recommend. But don't don't try and build Rome in a day um, because the chances are that it'll crumble. So just, and you want to avoid the crumbles because the crumbles are what, you know, can destroy people. Um, so just keep it, 
nice and slow, bit by bit, build those bricks, and don't be afraid to um, don't be afraid of of of, uh, of uh, trying something and not liking it either. Yeah. And what sort of skills do you think these people need for the twenty first century workforce? Oh, it's very interesting. Um, <laughs> I think the skill, I think the adaptability has to be the, <laughs> the key word here, right? It's like, I think the, uh, the old structure, you know, the, the, I guess the, what we had growing up as role models, the whole like job for life type thing, I think is gone. Mm. Um, I think that we've got to realize that, you know, people like the millennials now are probably going to have an average of seven roles in their lifetime. Um, yes, that's right. And I think so the key word is like flexibility and just being agile and just knowing that that stuff can change on a whim um, and just being adaptable for that. Because I see a lot of um, students that are about to head off to uni in absolute panic because they don't know what they want to be when they grow up. Mm realistically they are going to have five to seven careers in their lifetime but the panic they go through through choosing subjects and degrees and whether they want to go to uni is another thing that's causing massive health issues and you know I I think we need to be getting the message out there to anyone that you don't have to hurry You've got a lifetime and it's a journey, not a destination. Mm. And so, yeah, it is, is very wise and, you know, people like you that are doing amazing work, there's a real place for that. this work. Australia's become a country of placing so much emphasis on do you have a degree have you been to uni you know mm. we're an overeducated country and i think part of the problem is we have to pull back from that message what do you feel about that yeah um it kind of ties ties a little bit to what you were saying before about you know people leaving school and again it's coming back to that like oh what have you been for the last five years oh, i've been a school part a school kid right um there's that need to attach yourself to something that identity thing i have to anchor myself to whatever it is and so there's a rush to do that so this is where this uni thing comes in it's like oh my god if i don't if i don't get the points to be you know to go into medicine i can now say that i'm a doc i'm going to be a doctor and that's all i wanted to do instead of like you know there's i think what's happening is there's less of an emphasis on life experience now than there used to be i think life experience is something that's uh, i mean it's 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 very much it's getting valued a lot more in the workplace now um but there isn't a lot of people who are providing it now like i think it's it's going more education wise but the workforce is actually asking for more life experience so i think one of the things that would be useful for people to do. I mean, I'm a big believer in the gap year and big believer in kids uh, going off and working we and do. doing a couple, yeah, <laughs> doing a couple of like years, you know, traveling to Europe and working in bars and, and learning a new language. And I mean, like I think for Australian kids, I mean, one of the, one of the best things they could do would be to get out of school. I mean, like finish school, obviously uh, go, go to Europe or go to somewhere, learn a new language 
meet loads of people, that'll really help them um, realize that they're actually resilient, they're capable, they're adaptable, they've got all these skills, they'll grow into young people. Um, and learning a new language, uh, having two languages is, is super important. I mean, like, if, if I put my hand up and say what I think is the most important thing, one of the most important things to have is a second language. And I think um, and Australia, Australians can, you know, really benefit from that and go on and learn a new language. And suddenly you come back and you've got all these employment options. Yes. I mean, I mean who's not going to want to employ a, an educated kid who's, who's done all this cool stuff and who's got two languages? Like, I mean, you become, you can become more employable overnight, you know? So, um, so that's what I recommend, like going off getting life experiences and like education can wait. I mean, what's the, what's the big deal? Like, I mean, what's the, what's the, what's wrong with starting your, your degree at the age of 20 as opposed to 18? And the brain doesn't fully develop till 25. So how can they kind of know at 17 anyway? Yeah, yeah. I'm fully in agreement with you that, and I send that message to parents that it's okay to let them go out and live their life for a couple of years because they are building um, skills like resilience and those types of skills along yeah. the way because the only way you get through resilience is through experience. You can't stand up in a classroom and teach it. It's it's experience and I think we've just become a, a, a country that goes where well, you've got to go to uni and I find that it's it's creating a lot of problems, yes. Yeah, it seems to be like let on from school, like kids, they go, okay, what are you doing at uni? It's, it's like this schoolyard competition still exists and it drives people into these courses at uni that they necessarily don't want to do, but they need to do it to keep up with appearances. Um, Spot on. So it's just kind of them, them recognizing that their school kid friends, they're actually probably not going to know them in two years' time. Like, that's the reality, whereas the school environment is so um, such a bubble that they think like, oh, my God, these people are going to be with me for my whole life. But the reality is that they're not. <laughs> and you touched on a point there of keeping up appearances, and I guess that would be a big one for your athletes as well, is that they have been seen and noticed and suddenly how do you keep up appearances without causing yourself stress? Yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't really just have to repurpose yourself, you know. Yeah. And you've done a great job of repurposing yourself. I guess you're loving what you're doing. Well, yeah, it's been interesting because I've sort of like, um, I never thought I'd ever be working in this area um, when I finished sport because I didn't know this area existed. You know, I didn't, that's how unclued into it I was. Like, I didn't think it was going to be much of a problem. Um, so the fact that, it, that I didn't, I saw a problem and then saw how widespread it was and how you know, full on it was. I mean, you have the worst case scenarios happen in, in sport with sports people, um, a lot. And, um, and so I guess it became a bit of a, I mean, a kind of an entrepreneurial at heart. And, and, and I guess it was, this was, you know, as entrepreneurs were always looking for something that's going to have a social impact or, um, I guess what it did for me was it has that social impact. It's and it's entrepreneurial, but it's also like uh, tied into stuff I've experienced and I, I know. Um, and so that's, it, I guess all the elements were there to make it um, work. Uh, and yeah, so that's kind of, I mean, I do like what I'd like running my own 
um, show and things like that. That's very important to me. I guess it's figuring out what you what what's what's important to you and what you value. Like I I, I really value um, working on my own time and um, you know being able to do odd hours and that kind of stuff. If I have to work at night, I'll do it at night and you know that kind of thing. I I, I like that. Um, yeah, I, I say I wouldn't be a good employee anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't toe the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think you picked up on something just very important there is values. Yeah, absolutely. That's where you've that's where you've got to start with career development, right? Like it's absolutely. You've got to start. Yeah. You've got to start with values and, and you um you know, that's it, everything where everything works from there. Yeah, well, for the first rule is to know thyself. Um, and until you do, you can't really know your passions or what's important to you. But yeah. obviously you've found yours. You're very much aligned to us because what we're doing has we have a social conscience and I think it's really important in work today to be genuine and to actually really care. And I'm seeing it evolve more and more from, you know, the big corporate leaders to coming down to everyone's equal. Um, but it's still got a long way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was nice. I think it's a nice, I mean, it's a very interesting time for us in, in business, I think, and in general in the working world like it's shifting so much every day um <clears throat> you know i think it's in 20 years time it's going to be we won't even be able to recognize it you know no probably won't be in it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well let's hope not <laughs> well look it's been absolutely delightful speaking to you and hearing your journey and you must be very proud of what you've done and doing i'd love to chat to some more about that program because i think it's can be doing a lot more in other industries but congratulations on the work you're doing credit to you because thought leaders often have to push hard to get their concept heard and you're obviously a thought leader so it's been delightful good luck with your journey and likewise i'll speak with you soon thanks for joining us today absolutely if you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review for more information visit careerdevelopmentcenter.com.au